It's a great pleasure to be back at St Mary's. As Andrew said at the beginning, uh, my name is Bishop Paul Barker from the Diocese of Melbourne, and uh, I'm passing through, basically, after teaching in Myanmar in this past week, and happen to have a sermon in my pocket, sort of. Well, let's pray. Gracious God, your word is light and life. Shine its light in our hearts, we pray, so that we may live for the glory of Jesus. Amen. I think Balak Kampung can be a mixed blessing. Sometimes, going back to your hometown, you go to a hero's welcome. So the young person who's done well, become a hero, pass their degree, a sporting star, whatever it might be, Everybody greets them and they're very proud of their hometown hero. Happens sometimes in Australia, in sport, because we worship sport in Australia. And uh, the sporting winners will come back to their hometown. And sometimes they get a key to the city, which doesn't open anything, but nonetheless is a key to keep in their pocket for the rest of their life, I suppose. But other times, Balik Kampung is a bit different. You go back, you've grown up, you're an adult, but you're treated like a child. I went to a different city to university, so periodically I'd come back to my city and to my family, and I'm not sure they really quite grasped that I'd become an adult, in a sense. Some of you will have had that experience, and maybe some of you, like me still, find the same. Uh, your mother or father tries to, you know, look after you even though you're 60 years old, whatever it is. I remember a, a comedy sketch from England uh, years ago where the mum is trying to, you know, look after her son, uh, properly eating, cleaning his shoes, whatever it is, and he says to her, Mother, I am the Minister of Defence in the government. I can look after myself, you know. Here is this man who's uh, you know, my sort of age, really. In this Matthew's Gospel reading, Jesus is Balak Kampung, back, no, though not named here, but it's to Nazareth, where he grew up, where they knew him as a boy. Is this not the carpenter's son? It was a small place, Nazareth. It's bigger today. But it was pretty obscure. It was unimportant, a backwater. I know that if I try and pluck a sort of backwater, obscure Malaysian place, I'll offend somebody, no doubt. But I lived for five years in Saramban, and it was a sort of pretty boring place, in my opinion. Um, but Nazareth was much smaller than that, let me tell you. Uh, Nazareth was, was very unimportant. People would think, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Anyway, Jesus has been elsewhere in Galilee, in the north, around Capernaum, the north side of the Sea of Galilee, teaching and performing miracles and gathering crowds as well. The beginning of this chapter 13, that's where Jesus is, but in earlier chapters, he's in the same area, around Capernaum, crowds are there flocking to hear him and for many trying to get some form of miracle or healing. Fame has come to Jesus. And so you might expect that as he comes back to Nazareth, he'll be the hometown hero. They will flock to him. They'll roll out the red carpet or the palm leaves or the ancient equivalent, whatever. Nazareth knows of this. 
And so when he comes there, there is fame and astonishment. But there's more than that as well. Jesus comes, we're told in the reading we heard, to his hometown, and he taught them in their synagogue. And they were astonished. Now, we're not told what he taught. Though we get bits of teaching of Jesus elsewhere through the Gospels, so presumably there were some parables and some statements about who he was and fulfillment of the Old Testament passages and so on. If this is the same account in Luke 4, then there's more detail from Luke 4 about what he taught. But for Matthew, that's unimportant. The fact is that he taught and they were astonished. People are astounded at Jesus' wisdom in teaching. Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works, the miracles that Jesus was performing? So it looks on the surface as though he's he's the hometown hero. Here is his hometown, his uncles and aunties, broadly speaking, Malaysian speaking. Um, They're applauding him. They're astonished at his teaching. He's our boy. We raised him. Listen to him speak and preach. We're proud of him. But it's not quite like that. There is astonishment. But there is also offense. So a little bit further down, they took offense at him in verse 57. They've asked the questions rhetorically, is this not the carpenter's son, is not his mother Mary, are not his brothers James, Joseph, Simon and Judas? A couple of them, we don't know anything about them other than they mention here. And we do know that his virgin mother Mary was no longer a virgin giving birth to other brothers and presumably sisters uh, over time after she formally married Joseph. They know him as a boy. How can the boy, the carpenter's son, Mary's son, how can he be this guy who's preaching with such wisdom and doing these mighty acts of power? They're astonished. They're not denying it. But they take offense, we're told. Behind the word in Greek is scandal. Not scandal in the sense of infidelity or fraud, but scandal in the sense that they're scandalized by it. They can't They can't accept it fully. They can't grasp this or respond rightly to it. It's a strong reaction, this offense at what Jesus is teaching. Uh, It's negative. It's not even neutral. So on the one hand, they're astonished, but on the other hand, they're offended or scandalized. There's a tension of reaction, uh, competing reactions, in a sense, in them. They know Jesus as a boy. They don't see now what's happening and, and, and match the two together. Astonishment and offense. And they're puzzled. They don't seem to speak to Jesus about this. There's no indication here of, Jesus, tell us how you've got this wisdom. They ask, where did this man get it? But it seems almost as if they're not really interested in that, the answer to the question, that it's more of a rhetorical question and they don't want to pursue it any further with him. Or even if they did ask and find out something from Jesus, it seems that they refuse to accept that. 
They refuse to recognize the source, the divine source of Jesus' wisdom and power. And so though they are astonished, in effect, they reject him and take offense. Jesus is not surprised by this, of course. He quotes a proverb, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And like most proverbs, there's always exceptions to the rule. Presumably this was a proverb known of the day. And so Jesus did not do many mighty acts in that town because of their unbelief. Astonished, yes, but offended and scandalized and therefore unbelief is their reaction. There's something there of respect, of appreciating the wisdom, of marveling at the acts of power. They find him profound, I guess. And that's how people often respond to Jesus even today. Oh, a profound person, a man of peace, you know, alongside Confucius and Gandhi and you know, those sorts of Nelson Mandela type of figures. person we could get good advice from, perhaps. A teacher among many. But that's where people stop. With respect, but unbelief. And there are people who acknowledge today Jesus' power. Of course, on the whole, in our modern Western society, at least, people deny miracles and power. I remember a university friend of mine, wonderful guy, believed in the miracles and the resurrection but refused to become a Christian, respected Jesus highly, respected the Christians highly, but refused because he did not want to give his life over to God. And I think there are plenty of people who refuse to believe in Jesus. Respect, but reject. People may respond to Jesus positively in our society, but at the bottom line of unbelief, if that's what it is, then in the end, Jesus has caused them offense and scandal. And so the people of Nazareth, by and large at least, were full of unbelief. And of course, a reason for that, though not explored in this passage of Matthew, is that the Jesus of wisdom and power makes claims on people's lives, makes demands on us, Unlike Confucius and Gandhi and Mandela and those sorts of heroic figures of our history, Jesus demands that we follow him, that we take up our cross and follow him. And of course, the greatest wisdom that Jesus eventually not only teaches but demonstrates is the wisdom of the cross, which is demanding that we trust Jesus sufficiently for our salvation, but to take up our cross and follow him. Earlier in this very chapter, Jesus has taught what's called the parable of the sower. And there he's spoken about the good soil and what we should look for and, in effect, expect ultimately. And it's the one who bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. These are the ones who hear the word and understand it. 
And here is Nazareth who hears the word, who even is astonished at the word, but is faithless and therefore in the end fruitless. So beware then of unbelief that is cloaked in respect or even astonishment. That may even be you. You think, I value Jesus, I value his teaching, I respect him highly, but is there real faith? Or are you like the people of Nazareth? They reacted positively to Jesus, though offended, they were astonished. But ultimately, they reject him in unbelief. In Luke's gospel, if this is the same episode, they force Jesus out of Nazareth. Not spoken about here in Matthew. It may be or may not be the same episode exactly. Well, one person who'd heard of Jesus was the ruler of the area of Galilee. His name was Herod Antipas. His capital city, Tiberias, was a little bit south of Capernaum on the side of the western side of the Sea of Galilee, not all that far from Nazareth, uh, in effect. And he had ruled Galilee since his father died, his father being Herod the Great, the one who killed the babies after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So he'd ruled since 4 BC. Uh, Jesus was not born in the year zero, of which there is no year, but he was born probably around 5 or 6 BC. And at that time, chapter 14, verse 1 says, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame. Now, we have lots of weird names for office bearers in the Anglican church, but Tetrarch is not one of them. In fact, there are not many Tetrarchs. You have a monarch in Malaysia. We have a remote one in Australia. But we don't have Tetrarchs. In fact, I'm not aware of any tetrarchs around. If you are one, please tell me afterwards or put up your hand. A monarch, mono, one, uh, one ruler. Tetrarch, tetra, to be four. The idea being that they divided into four areas. So when Herod the Great, who wasn't that great, died, four of his sons, in effect, uh, ruled areas that he had ruled himself. And Herod Antipas was one of those four, and his area was Galilee. Herod heard about the fame of Jesus in his own area around Galilee. And Herod said to his servants about Jesus, this is just John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead, and that's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Herod was no Jew and didn't particularly know his Old Testament, I suspect. And there was certainly traditions or superstitions, at least, that dead people might be able to perform miracles. And we see sometimes that sort of veneration of those who've died in their relics in different aspects of religion around our world these days. So maybe Herod is thinking that this is John the Baptist, he's dead, and there are miracles that he, his dead body or spirit is able to do. But maybe Herod's response is also sort of a twinge of a guilty conscience. Because he, Herod Antipas, had already put John the Baptist to death. Now notice firstly that Herod's response is unbelief. 
a deliberate unbelief like those of Nazareth. The people of Nazareth respect Jesus, but don't really believe him. Herod, well, it's not obvious that he has that much respect. And he doesn't believe either. Their refusal to believe is a common factor. John the Baptist has already been mentioned a number of times in Matthew's Gospel. Way back in chapter 3, John the Baptist baptised Jesus in the Jordan River and preached in the lead-up to that. And then in the subsequent chapter, chapter 4, we're told by Matthew that he was arrested by Herod Antipas and as put in prison. And as a result of that, Jesus moves back up north into Galilee uh, to preach and do his ministry. And then in Matthew 11, which I think was an earlier part of your sermon series a few weeks ago, uh, John the Baptist from prison sent messengers to Jesus to find out, are you really the Messiah? And Jesus responded with evidence fulfilling Old Testament prophecy that he was. And part of his reply was, blessed are you if you take no offense in me. Same word that's used to the people of Nazareth who do take offense in Jesus. And Jesus, in that same chapter 11 of Matthew, praises John the Baptist and links himself with John. They're allies together. Well, in the meantime, but untold in the gospel story until now, Herod has had John the Baptist put to death. And so what happens now in the story is that Herod's response is, ah, this Jesus, this is not Jesus' miracles, this is really just John the Baptist at work in some way, shows his rejection. But what Matthew now needs to do is tell us how and why John the Baptist was already put to death, which he's not done yet. And so that's what we see in the rest of the reading today from chapter 14. It was... Uh, we're told, uh, Matthew had said that Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. And, and that's because, and this is like a soap opera, Herod Antipas was married, but he sort of fell for his uh, brother Philip's wife, sister-in-law, is that right? Uh, Herodias, and wanted her. And John the Baptist had said, it's not lawful for you to do that. Danger being a prophet, danger speaking the truth ethically in society. And so he was tossed into prison. Herod Antipas wanted to put John to death, but he also feared the people because John the Baptist was quite popular. So here is a weak leader, an evil but weak leader, bowing to people's popularity or the the people power, not being able to do what you really want, and so on. Herod, uh, his, uh, Herod Antipas's first wife uh, was actually the daughter of the king of the Nabataeans based around Petra in Jordan today. So when he divorced her, the king of the Nabataeans didn't like that, so he launched a war against Herod Antipas, which he sort of won in a way, although Herod Antipas survived it. So there's lots of sort of complicated stories going on here. Uh, with Herod, Antipas, and half-brother Philip. There are a couple of half-brothers, Philip, actually, and this one was not a tetrarch. Anyway, Herod's birthday came, and the daughter of Herodias, Salome, uh, we're not told her name here, danced before the company and pleased Herod. 
The whole style of this birthday feast suggests something that's probably sensual or erotic. She is probably a young girl, not yet of age, and, uh, and probably there's an element of you know, sexual depravity and drunkenness that's sort of under, uh, underneath the surface in the way that this, uh, this killing of John the Baptist is told. Herod Antipas, because he was pleased with the dancing, promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Now, he might expect, here's a young girl, prepubescent. Uh, she's probably going to ask for, you know, dolls or something. I don't know, you know, something innocuous. Uh, but she goes and asks her mother, what should I ask? It's clear that she's a girl, not yet an adult, because she goes to her mother. And prompted by her mother, she said then back to Herod Antipas, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. An expression that's become famous, you know, give someone's head on a platter. We use it even today occasionally, hopefully not literally. This is, this is depraved. This is repulsive and grotesque. It's one thing to say, look, go and put John the Baptist to death. Get rid of him. But to bring the head on a platter in a birthday feast? I'd rather birthday cake with candles. And I guess you would as well. So it's a pretty obscene sort of picture here of um, putting this John the Baptist to death. And the king was sorry, King Herod, who wasn't really a king. But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. So he wanted to put John the Baptist to, de to death, but he feared the popular people. And then when he had the opportunity to do it, he was a bit sorry to do it. Here is a prevaricating, very weak, but evil uh, tetrarch, really. Wicked, but weak. And so Herod, fearing the guests, and because of an oath, and the, even the idea of an oath is ridiculous. I mean, you know, here's the, door, the girl dancing. You don't swear an oath. I'll give you on oath what you want. You just say, what would you like? It shows, I think, probably an overreaction and, and people suggest because of drunkenness, probably. Here is the depravity of weak power. Ultimately, Antipas in 39 AD, after Jesus was put to death, and this is the Herod that was there when Jesus was killed, uh, is sent off to France, as we call it, uh, into exile. Why does Matthew go into all this detail, apart from the fact that it happened? He's drawing a link between John and Jesus. In Nazareth, Jesus had been rejected with unbelief. If it's the same episode as Luke, he was kicked out of the town, but not put to death yet. But now we find another rejection of Jesus by Herod, which matches his rejection of John the Baptist, who was then put to death in this grotesque way. At the hinge point of this gospel, in the middle of it, what's happening is that rejection leading to death is taking a center stage. Way back at the beginning, there is violence when Herod the Great kills the babies of Bethlehem in Matthew 2. Here in the middle, the killing of John the Baptist, foreshadowing like a dark cloud the killing of Jesus to come at the end of the gospel. 
Uh, you know very well here in Malaysia, you see the dark clouds of the torrential rain coming. Uh, for a couple of years I lived in PJ in a condo and I could see the dark clouds hiding the Genting Highlands, hiding some of the taller buildings, and I knew that torrential rain and thunderstorm was coming. And what this is, is a dark, dark cloud showing us, foreshadowing for us, that rejection of Jesus is never neutral. It is going to bring about his death one day soon. Because there is no neutral ground with Jesus, like there'd been none with John. Because we can't respond to Jesus neutrally. We may praise him or respect him and be astonished at his teaching. But if that's as far as it goes, then we're not neutral. We've actually rejected him. We've been scandalized and offended by his claims about himself. And people today still find Jesus a threat. In the parable of the sower earlier in Matthew 13, Jesus had warned that people will not listen. Uh, they, will have, they will be blind to the truth and deaf to it. And that's what now is being evidenced in Nazareth and with Herod. And today... People still find Jesus a threat and are offended and scandalized by him. They may think he's a man of peace, a wise teacher, a great person. But the claims he makes are offensive for some and a scandal for some. But you can't pick and choose which bits of Jesus you like to keep. Jesus, you see, threatens our power. He threatens our ego. He threatens our morality or immorality. He threatens our pride and our wisdom. We can't just respond to him with astonishment. He wants us to respond with faith and then fruitfulness. But in the end, the greater threat that Jesus brings is not a threat to our ego and us, but the threat that we might stumble and take offense and be scandalized by him. Yes, he was a rock that caused many to stumble, but for those who believe a precious cornerstone, one on whom we can rest our lives securely, the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Astonishment and respect are not trust or faith. The people of Nazareth respected, were astonished, but were unbelievers. And so for us to check our hearts, we may be full of praise and respect for this Jesus, but are we full of faith and fruitfulness as Jesus' parables demand? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that our response to Jesus will be right, will be full of faith and fruitfulness, that we will not be scandalized or offended by him, that we will not stumble over him. We thank you for him. Amen.